This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. This is Matt Martin. I'm the chair of the East Online Education Section. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today for another East Live Town Hall debate. We've got a, a great topic, uh, cervical spine clearance in the obtunded patient. We've got a great panel. And so I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Kevin Pay from Yale. And after the debate portion of the program, we will then open it up for anyone who has questions or comments or, you know, wants to chime in and share some thoughts. So we'll go ahead and turn it over to you, Kevin. All right. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Kevin Pay, your TraumaCast moderator. And I wanted to second uh, the welcome to the TraumaCast, uh, along with Matt Martin, my co-moderator. Uh, you know, we have a really exciting program, like Matt said, and our topic is on clearing the C-spine based on CT scan alone. And the question today is, is it best practice or perhaps a dangerous mm -hmm. precedent? Uh, we all know election season is upon us, and I promise that our debate teams will be as passionate and entertaining as our presidential candidates, I hope. Um, for those of you not familiar with the town hall debates, you know, it's real unique in the sense that we give our uh, live audience an opportunity to participate so speaking of which, we're very much looking forward to your questions and comments, the more the merrier, so don't be shy. Uh, when the mic's open, please chime in. This is a particularly exciting trauma cast for us, not only because of the topic, but also because we've got some real heavy hitters today uh, on our debate panel. So allow me a few moments to introduce our debate teams. Uh, first up, arguing in favor of C-spine clearance based on CT alone is uh, Mayor Patel. Dr. Patel is lead author of the 2015 East Practice Management Guidelines for Cervical Spine Collar Clearance in the Attended Adult Blunt Trauma Patient. He is also faculty at the Vanderbilt University. Welcome, Mayor. Next up is Ruby Skinner, Dr. Skinner's Chief of Trauma Division and Director of Surgical Critical Care Unit at Kern Medical and a member of our online education committee. And uh, we can always count on uh, Ruby to participate. Argue on the opposing position that CT scan may not be enough, Kevin Schuster. Uh, Dr. Schuster is on the Board of Directors of East, Chair of the Manuscript of Faculty at the Yale School of Medicine. And we're real excited uh, because last but definitely not least is our East Society President, Dr. Nicole Stassen. Dr. Stassen is faculty at the University of Rochester, and we're really honored to have you uh, join us, Nicole. Thanks. So welcome all the experts. Now, I know in normal life, we want to be real civilized and cordial. But for the next hour during the debate, I encourage all of you to go at it. No holds barred, um, but let's keep it classy. No name calling, no personal attacks, no physical contact, and nothing below the belt. All right? Is everybody ready? Well, that's no fun. <laughs> so so well, we'd like to start by asking Dr. Patel to give us a summary of the 2015 East Practice Management Guidelines. But, Mayor, we'll, we'll ask you to reframe from starting the debate. Just a, just a pure review, please, and then we're going to go – to opening arguments on both sides, five minutes each, and we're going to go for rebuttals from both sides. And after that, we'll open up the mics for audience questions, okay? So, Mayor, would you please start and give us an overview of the practice management guidelines? Happy to, Kevin, and uh, thanks 
to you and Dr. Martin again for being our East Town Hall moderators. So facts, just the facts. Um, I'll start off with a five-minute summary of our results and recommendations from our 2015 guideline, cervical spine clearance in the obtunded blunt trauma patient. So the population we were looking at, obviously, the obtunded adult blunt trauma patient, and our question was, should cervical spine clearance be performed after a negative high-quality C-spine CT combined with any sort of adjunct imaging and clinical follow-up? versus clearing the cervical spine alone based on a negative, high-quality cervical spine CT. And the goal, obviously, was to reduce periclearance events, and these events that we considered most critical were new neurologic change resulting in paraplegia or quadriplegia after the collar was taken off, or identification of an unstable cervical spine injury. Uh, we subcategorized that latter outcome into if that required an operational orthotic. Um, secondary outcomes that we looked at of decreasing importance were those related to identification of a stable cervical spine injury, um, imaging aspects requiring further imaging, false negative reads requiring re-review, and other complications such as pressure ulcer development and certainly some classes of individuals are interested in time to cervical collar removal. Um, before we kind of understand some of the results, we have to understand our population a little bit deeper. And aside from the adult blunt trauma patient that was 16 years or older, their C-spine CT required an axial thickness of less than three millimeters and some aspect of a definition of being obtunded could have been a Glasgow coma scale, less than 15, unconscious, intubated, altered mental status, unreliable examination, distracting injury, intoxicated, or not meeting the nexus guidelines. Um, our exclusions were pretty straightforward and amounted to limiting lesser quality literature, such as case reports, newspaper articles, editorials, um, et cetera, things that didn't contain original data. So our study characteristics. At the end of this intense systematic review of the literature, we were left with 12 studies that we could accomplish a synthesis and data extraction, and these 12 articles serve as, as the basis for our, our study and review. So we had four studies that were prospective, eight were retrospective. The CT axial thickness was all over the place and variable, but below our three millimeter cutoff, and the most common adjunct imaging method was MRI, um, although certainly other adjunct methods were used. FlexX films of the plain variety is CT variety as well, upright films, um, and clinical follow-up. Um, all of these were, were cohort studies, but there was really only one complete cohort, and uh, we can get into that in our discussion. On to the results. So first and foremost, we found that the population of obtunded had a variable uh, definition, um, and we considered that really lacking a definition that was consistent across these studies. Really getting to the meat of the data involving over 1,800 subjects in 12 studies, um, really no study reported an unstable cervical spine fracture by CT or the adjunct. That really means that the negative predictive value for identifying an unstable 
injury is 100%. You take the true um, negatives divided by the true negatives and the false positives, which were zero, and that was the negative predictive value using a CTC spine after trauma. We did find 91% had uh, a negative predictive value for any stable cervical spine injury. Um, but again, the negative predictive value for an unstable injury was 100%. Uh, for the articles reporting follow-up of over 1,000 patients, no article reported neurological change such as paraplegia or quadriplegia after that cervical collar removal. Remember, that's the most critical outcome for our guideline. So in summary, in obtunded adult blunt trauma patients, we conditionally recommended cervical collar removal after a negative high-quality cervical spine CT alone. And we placed strong emphasis on the high negative predictive value of this high-quality CT imaging in excluding unstable cervical spine injury. Dr. Patel, why don't you start actually with your opening arguments, but why you felt like CT, is in, is, uh, CT alone is adequate to clear the C-spine of the obtunded trauma patient. All right, Kim. So this guideline, I think just taking a step back of who contributed to it, the thought leaders that were part of this, this was not a trauma-centric, we-know-best, big brother type of review. This was a multi-specialty recommendation from experts in not only trauma and emergency medicine, but colleagues in neuroradiology, orthopedic spine surgery, biostatistics, public health, even folks in the grade working group helped drive this, this analysis. So a lot of thought was put into the collection and interpretation of this data. I'll remark the cons out of this argument are esteemed Kevin Schuster hails from Yale, and we even have uh, one of his Yale professors, the vice chair, Department of Neurosurgery, Dr. Chang, being a co-author on this paper. And this was done under the auspices of past president Kim Davis, also hailing from Yale. So um, a lot of people across the country, including the institution from the con side, have contributed to this guideline. Okay, so for the skeptics and conservatives in the audience, are we really going to believe me, a silly trauma surgeon? Well, if you don't, there was another systematic review that was published right at the same time in 2015 and published in the High Impact Journal of uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. And depending on their eligibility criteria, they looked at over 3,500 subjects. Zero percent of significant injuries were missed after negative CT results, and they really report no gain in the adjunct use of MRI. Um, they summarized cervical spine clearance of tended adults after blunt trauma with negative results from a high-quality CT that's well interpreted is safe and efficient practice. So what do we do as a community? Um, you know, indiscriminately relying on cervical collar immobilization, confirmatory tests, and interventions are really going to cost our health system to hemorrhage, and we're going to drive up costs without really demonstrable improvement in outcomes. The, there's always an argument that the obtunded population is most at risk for an unrecognized, devastating injury because of their multi-system polytrauma nature, more severe physiology, and the inability to, to really examine them neurologically. But we took the world's literature, supersaturated it with a high-risk population, however one wants to define it, 
and with a good CT scan, the negative predictive value was 100%. So we can't really continue this indiscriminate two-stage sequential screening for C-spine injuries if the rate is near zero for the first test. It's going to result in a lot of false positives and inconsistent treatment plans. You know, the essence of a diagnostic screening test, as we wrote, is reduction of ambiguity surrounding a patient problem, not elimination. This is not a never event. And the medical legal community have tried to vanquish missed C-spine injuries through the course of lawsuits and imaging and re-imaging, but, you know, ultimately our goal in today's medicine is to efficiently provide the best care for the highest number of patients um, while containing risk. And we've got to eliminate high-cost, low-value services. Um, otherwise, folks coming into the emergency department with chest pain who have negative EKGs and biomarkers because they still have chest pain, well, we got to do the gold standard and we got to get the cath. Um, we would be doing that and causing our system to really crash if we did that for every two-stage, multi-stage diagnostic test. I think the other piece of this that was reminded by one of my co-authors recently is this is an example of surveillance bias. This is a non-random type of information bias that relates to this topic. And it re refers to the more you look, the more you find. If you're going to do an MRI, well, you're going to find non-important ligamentous injury and other things that really don't contribute to the stability of the cervical spine. So for all the MRI fans out there, what do you do with the stable injuries that are identified um, by, by MRI? Well, I mean, some argue keeping the collar on, um, but really this represents the spectrum of whiplash injury, and, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that early mobilization and therapy dominates over continued immobilization, and certainly there's risks of pressure ulcers, decreased venous return, other difficulties with patient management, with their airway and central line management, and things that, that really our nurses uh, and families are starting to bring up. We've all seen the patient in the ICU. Their neck is completely mobile, you know, mobile through this poorly fitting collar off to a non-zero angle. Even, you know, the nurses, the environmental services workers, they're, they're asking, what are the purposes of this collar? And a lot of times, there really isn't. On to the con side. Dr. Schuster's up next, but there's a reason this topic is uh, really important. So I'm going to have uh, Perfect time. Kevin go over <laughs> Donald Trump's side of the uh, the argument, I guess. Oh, so he, he's Donald Trump. Okay. Uh, I'll be Hillary. So, got it. Okay. So yeah, Dr. Patel has made a compelling argument based on cost, efficiency, value. So let's hear what Dr. Kevin Schuster has to say. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with <clears throat> the things that we don't know. I'd first like to point out that uh, although Dr. Chang is on the uh, faculty at Yale now, it's uh, widely rumored that he was uh, required to leave uh, Vanderbilt after writing this, uh, participating in this guideline. <laughs> but that being said, um, the questions that I have and the reason we can't answer this question, although we've tried definitively multiple times, there have been multiple papers, and yet we still keep coming up with the same final conclusions. And I'm going to go to the conclusions of the two papers uh, that Dr. Patel mentioned um, in the very beginning, um, at the end. But first, I'm going to start with <clears throat> number one questions. What is the accepted miss rate of a negative CT scan? You know, how many CT scans um, do we get that are read as negative but yet actually have a finding? Well, we don't know that number. Um, there's just no way to know that number because we don't have the better test. You could say it's MRI, and MRI is helpful, but we really don't know that. 
second question or in terms of, um, as Dr. Patel pointed out, what are the consequences <coughs> of missing something, uh, or excuse me, what are the consequences of findings on an MRI? If you see a little bit of um, inflammation around some of the ligaments and the posterior elements of the C-spine, is that truly uh, a positive finding or is it not? A lot of people would say yes, a lot of people would say no. The paper that was presented by our section just recently at the AAST, we found 25% of patients who underwent MRI um, actually had a significant finding or what was deemed to be a significant finding by uh, board-certified spine surgeons such that they decided to either leave the cervical collar in place or actually <clears throat> in uh, about 2% of patients actually took the patient to the operating room and performed a fixation procedure to fix the instability in the spine. So there are going to be findings on MRI that likely indicate stability. So then the question becomes, do we leave the collar on and is that adequate stability? We don't even know what type of stability the collar adds. We think it adds a fair amount, but we're not sure. And I admittedly, this is part, partly on the other side of the argument. We don't know. Um, there has been some evidence that cervical collars actually don't add a lot of increased stability. So maybe some, a lot more of these patients should actually even be going to surgery. Then they, you keep hearing the same term, high-quality, well-interpreted CT scan. Well, what is a high-quality, well-interpreted CT scan? Does everybody have to have a, you know, a 128-slice uh, helical CT scanner to be high-quality? Do they have to have a neuroradiologist that is interpreting every image? And if you do, do you have the manpower and resources to have a neuroradiologist available 24-7 so that you can take your cervical collars off if you so choose? And then the final and probably most important question is, is how many patients are we willing to put at risk for developing quadriplegia or paraplegia or any neurologic deficit actually? Is that number one in a thousand? Is it one in a hundred thousand? Is it one in a million? We first, you know, the, although I read recently that the Hippocratic Oath didn't really say do no harm, we still think that way and we should do no harm first. So, <clears throat> All that being said, we have another force at work in medicine, that's the medical legal component. And so whenever I talk with my spine surgeons, I know that this is their big issue with this uh, scenario. And that is, well, what are you going to do when it happens? And it's going to come down on you, the trauma surgeon, you, the institution, and then does it come down on the people that wrote the guidelines? to come down on the society that supported the guidelines? And that's a huge question. And I think that's why we get to the, what will be my final point is if you look at both of the papers that we are probably discussing, which is the uh, excellent guideline uh, produced by Dr. Patel, regardless of whether I agree with the final conclusions, well written, but the final recommendation, <coughs> excuse me, is that they conditionally recommend removing the cervical collar. So what does it mean to conditionally recommend something? And why can't they just say, we recommend that you remove the cervical collar? Similarly, the Annals of Internal Medicine paper that Dr. 
uh, Patel referred to that said it was probably a safe and efficient practice to remove the servo collar in the setting of all these unanswered questions that I uh, initially pointed out. So with that, I will turn it over to the next debater. All right, great. So, Dr. Um, Dr. Skinner, you're up, but you know Dr. Schuster made a uh, also a fairly compelling com um, uh, argument based on the fact that there are so many unanswered questions right now and um, that we swore an oath to do no harm, whether it was part of the Hippocratic Oath or so we shouldn't leave anybody behind. Um, please share your thoughts with us. Sure. I, I think that Dr. Um, Patel and Dr. Schuster's uh, discussions and, and, and arguments were both very compelling. Um, and I, I want to thank um, uh, Kevin for organizing this and the presenters uh, for participating. But, you know, um, this topic uh, provoke, invokes a lot of emotion. And I, I think a lot of it, you know, is, is due to the perception that paralysis can be induced by removing a collar without an adjunctive study to a high-quality CT. Um, this perception or misperception, if you will, is really unfounded. Um, it's unfounded in the literature, and um, there, I, there's been a theme spanning back over 10 years or so um, that has um, demonstrated that CT is comparable to MRI in the detection of unstable injury patterns based on their pictures. But before I get into that, <clears throat> just want to briefly discuss um, the issue of the cervical collar and its function. We know, we all know that a cervical collar does not completely immobilize the spine. Um, spinal motion is very complex and, you know, uh, full or even restricted motion with a cervical collar in place is a myth. Um, if an unstable bony or ligamentous injury has been ruled out with a, an appropriate radiologic study, then there's really no evidence that the cervical collar is protective. And I think that's the crux of this debate here. Um, Dr. Schuster also mentioned, you know, the issue of uh, the cervical collar giving stability um, because I think that that's really the key here and that's something um, that is often missed um, in, in this discussion. The historical use of cervical collars, you know, has been is related to pre-hospital and uh, the pre-hospital set, setting for the safe extrication and evacuation of patients. And even in the pre-hospital world, the literature is starting to critically uh, uh, evaluate the use of collars. You know, we see this with long boards um, being abandoned. Um, there are uh, certainly protocols in place uh, and studies uh, looking at pre-hospital clearance of the cervical spine and even limited application um, uh, uh, of cervical collars um, in, in patients. So if in the pre-hospital setting, where the motion is uncontrolled, the patients are uncontrolled, there's no, in, there's no um, injury diagnosis or at least no definitive injury diagnosis. If in that setting the application of the cervical collar is being questioned, why um, it doesn't make sense that we are so hesitant um, in the hospital, the acute setting, not even the acute setting, we are so hesitant to remove a collar after patients have been stabilized, after diagnoses have been made, and after uh, high-quality studies have been obtained to rule out unstable injuries. Now, going back to the paper, um, you know, the, I think the limitations of the data um, and the limitations of the data that uh, Dr. the other paper that Dr. Patel uh, discussed, I think they were um, they were demonstrated. 
Um, but I think the main issue is the high negative predictive value of CT for um, uh, diagnosing unstable injuries. I think that's the main um, uh, crux of, of, of the paper or the main um, argument uh, towards removing seat, uh, collars in the obtunded patients. And this issue, this issue has been demonstrated um, dating back to 2005. There was a great study that came out of uh, shock trauma that um, demonstrated a 100% negative predictive value of CT scan for unstable spine injuries when comparing CT to MRI. So this, this, this data, uh, this discussion has been out there. I, I think it's all coming together. Um, and so um, I, I was very glad when these guidelines came out. It was very timely. So in conclusion, um, um, I think we ought to embrace and trust our technology. Uh, the evolution of CT scan, um, you know, has changed our practices in many ways, and it's fitting that we evaluate it critically but trust it uh, for the, the cervical spine. And, um, you know, uh, the data really supports that CT is um, uh, of, of strong value um, in evaluating the cervical spine, and there's really no evidence that after a CT scan, uh, a negative CT scan that the collar is protective at all. Um, so I'm going to end here, and I look forward to um, uh, Dr. Stassen's rebuttal. Well, it's it's always nice to be able to come in as the closer because you, you've seen the, the three chapters that have come before you, and they were elegantly presented. Um, but I think that there's there's a number of unanswered questions. Um, Dr. Skinner just mentioned a uh, shock trauma paper back in the early 2000s where CAT scan was enough. Yet even coming out of shock just a few years later, there's an elegant paper, again, probably looking at some of the same patients they had in that first study, saying that more slices still wasn't enough in a CAT scanner. I think where the crux of a lot of this comes in is this entire guideline hinges on a quote-unquote high-quality CAT scan. But we haven't defined that. What is that? Is that a 64 slice? Is that a 128 slice? Is that with, I'm assuming it's with um, sagittal and coronal reconstructions, although that's not necessarily mentioned within within um, within the paperwork. Um, where where do you draw that line in an institution that doesn't have those facilities? Is that scan enough? Is it not enough? Lots of unanswered questions. You know, we're not talking about, you know, Dr. Skinner also brought up the, that EMS is contemplating not, you know, in, in, in upstate New York as well. You know, they're not necessarily boarding and collaring everybody that's coming in. But we're also not talking about the awake trauma patient that can tell you my arm is numb, my hand is numb, I can't move my big toes, et cetera, et cetera. We're really talking about a sub classification of those of our trauma patient population, which are the fully obtunded can't work with you patients, the ones who cannot indicate to you what does and doesn't feel right to them. And therein lies the crux. I echo Kevin's concern that the conditional and probably um, this is good enough, which is within the guideline, um, is that a, is that good enough for our patients? Um, going back again to the quality of the scan, so we haven't defined what that good quality scan is. We haven't defined who is the one who reads that. 
Um, in my own institution, one of the things that we've looked at, the young and the old, in the arthritic spine, is it the same versus in the young person where you can see, you know, all of those lovely stacking marshmallows of of the vertebral bodies beautifully, is that the same as somebody who has enough osteophytes on their cervical spine to create another skeleton? I wager that it's probably not. And I think there are subsections of our population that just that CAT scan's not going to be good enough. And are we willing to risk those populations at this time with some of those questions that are unanswered? Again, the focus, what is the high, what what is defined as that high-quality scan, who's reading it, which patient populations, too many unanswered questions to say that it's really 100% ready for prime time. And I, I tried not to take too much offense that Dr. Patel didn't ask me to participate on the guidelines since I wrote one of the earlier guidelines, and even even <laughs> on back and forth on uh, in 2003, we said, no, you don't, or in 99, 2000, we said, no, you don't need further imaging. 2003, 2004, yes, you do need further imaging. And now we're going back again saying we don't need further further imaging. So even organizationally, we have a challenge. And, you know, all the papers from my institution were all eliminated from this meta-analysis. So is there a little bit of a bias towards taking collars off? I would wager yes. And I'll close with that. That's quite a closing, Dr. Stephan. Thank you very much. All right, great. So uh, we've we've done our uh, opening arguments and rebuttals, and now we'd like to go ahead and open the mic to our audience. Um, we already have a question um, from our first participant. We have a uh, Jen Knight. Um, hello, Jen. I'm here. Hello. Go ahead and, and direct your questions, please, to the um, uh, debate team. Sure. Um, thank you uh, all for participating in this, and I think that um, a lot of times when we do these debates, um, you, you know, the compelling arguments either way. What I would like each of you to do is commit here and now in a, in a formal way. Do you believe your CT scans and obtended patients and take the collar off, or do you look further with further imaging? So I can go first with that. Um, in the young, healthy trauma patient who has a completely normal, no osteophytes, no nothing, um, cervical spine CT scan, we have a 128-slice scanner. We do the coronal and sagittal reconstructions. They're read by our neuroradiologist and formally finely read, not you know whatever sticky note is thrown in our electronic medical record on the night of of the interpretation. Um, we will um, clear those patients' collars. In anyone who has any arthritic change, we do not. We go, we do image further. I'll go next. Um, we've uh, uh, evolved with this, um, but we will clear the collars in uh, patients with um, normal CT scans. Um, now, uh, again, as, as Dr. Stossel said, in patients that have degenerative changes, um, you know, the, we'll take that on a patient-by-patient a, a patient basis. Uh, the CT scans are initially reviewed by our radiologist um, and uh, then reviewed with um, our neurosurgical team and, and trauma surgeons, and uh, then we will all agree um, uh, if the study is um, 
uh, adequate um, and um, the patient is adequate, we will remove the collars. That's what we do. Okay. I guess we'll go in reverse order. I'll take uh, – it's Kevin Schuster. I'll take the – we um, do MRI for everybody that's obtunded uh, who even despite the negative CT scan. So negative CT scan, obtunded patient, uh, cannot be cleared clinically, gets an MRI. And like I said, what we published our data, um, which was a multi-institutional study from uh, the New England Trauma uh, Consortium, that uh, there was still there in that population of patients, two percent of them uh, went on to fixation. So MRI is finding things that, at least in the eyes of the spine surgeons, is a an unstable injury. And despite the fact that we are MRIing all of our patients, our hospital is not going broke. Uh, because it is relatively cheap once you have the scanner and the tech is actually sitting there anyway. So um, we do MRI all of our patients. All right, and I'll finish off the answer to the question. Um, it, it, it's kind of a hybrid answer of, of everyone who's, who's um, participated here today. And the situation scenarios that I would remove a collar on and I do remove a collar on are typically the young, they have no history of spine pathology, hardware, et cetera. They are able to move. They have an exam in the sense that they can move their upper extremities with symmetric strength. Um, and I, I completely agree with uh, Nicole in the sense that it's got to have um, three-dimensional reconstructions. There's not massive osteophytes or suggestions of ankylosing spondylitis or other scary pathology. Um, after which point uh, the collar is removed. Um, so this is Kevin Pay again. Um, Kevin, just to, to follow up what Mayor said, it's Nicole Sasson again. I think that that key that the, the patients are moving all of their extremities is vital, and I think that that becomes a challenge on our patient population that have broken extremities, et cetera, where you don't have that that exam. Absolutely, and you know what we struggle with as a system here. Um, is is that piece um, people with other demographics that that don't quite fit that that niche um, population and what we want to do is kind of standardize this um, housewide down so that all of us feel comfortable um, in in the data that we're passing forth so that it results in a reasonable action. I think one of the questions was brought up is what is a high-quality um, scanner and what's the manpower required? And um, I mean, I think a system is needed. Uh, you need to be part of a trauma center where all of these pieces are in place from the variety of types of spine surgeons, the radiologists, providing reads that just don't simply say no intracranial, no cervical spine pathology. Um, it's got to have a couple more uh, uh, elements and those are the kind of pieces that we're trying to do um, housewide before we move forward um, with a protocol that can address the obtunded as well as non-obtunded. Yeah, I do think it has to be institution-driven. Um, you really have to have your, your radiologist and your neurosurgeons um, and your trauma surgeons, um, you know, on board and together and to establish criteria for the technique as well as, you know, uh, what is considered normal versus abnormal, and what do you do with uh, the abnormal findings? 
abnormals a wider range of findings, you know, including degenerative changes to mild uh, edema, which could suggest, you know, ligamentous injury and things like that. And so I think it really has to be well-established um, on an institutional basis. Um, uh, but we've really moved towards when I first uh, came on um, uh, seven years ago to get from getting MRIs on every patient to really being uh, super selective and not um, uh, rarely getting MRIs on obtunded patients, but doing it when it's you know definitely appropriate. All right. Um, so guys, I'm gonna sorry, I'm gonna cut you off because we have a bunch of um, audience questions. But I actually wanted to ask uh, maybe uh, Dr. Schuster, you can field this question, and then uh, maybe Dr. Patel um, for the rebuttal. So, you know, the, in 2010, there was a meta-analysis that said that for those patients that had a negative CT that were follow-up with an MRI, 6% um, of them um, showed that there were, in fact, some um, uh, findings on the MRI that changed the clinical management. But the mass majority of those were just to remain, to, to be kept in their collar for a while. So what's the role of just not getting an MRI, having a negative CT, just keep the collar in six weeks? Well, I think that everybody obviously fears the dreaded pressure ulcer, and you can argue what the cost of a pressure ulcer is. The, you know, the um, Bryce Robinson, the current uh, chair of the Guidelines Committee, just published or has had a paper accepted by the Journal of Trauma looking at a cost-effectiveness analysis in this, this exact question. And they felt when uh, the missed injury rate is greater than 4% or there, conclusion was that an MRI is um, an effective imaging modality for the obtunded patient if you have a 4% miss rate by CT scan. As we talked about, we're not really sure what the miss rate is. It's admittedly probably not 4%, but it, there's some number there that we just don't know. And at that point, when you take in everything into account in terms of the risk of pressure ulcers and everything else in the old number of $50,000 for a quality-adjusted life year and uh, all the rest of the, you know, vagaries of doing a cost um, uh, cost assessment analysis, uh, they felt that 4% uh, miss rate, the MRI, was important. That way you can take the collars uh, off. Um, so, you know, like I said, there is consequence to uh, leaving the collar on. You have to decide what, you know, what you're willing to accept uh in terms of those risks. Dr. Patel, any thoughts on splitting the difference, just keep the collar on, but, but not quite taking the collar off just based on the CT? I think this opens up a whole new line of, of really investigation in the sense of what do these collars do again? What kind of biomechanical support do they provide? Does leaving your head in a fixed torticollis-like position actually help your mobility down the road or or harm it or really not do anything. Um, you'll see the treatment recommendations, you know, kind of like a thumb, thumb waving over the patient. Well, he looks like he's a four-week kind of guy, maybe eight weeks. Um, and you'll find a lot of inconsistency about these treatment plans, and I think this behooves our multi-specialty community to try to figure out, you know, what is the utility for these collars um, for people with, with vague um, ligamentous injury that does not require an operation and people without a neurologic deficit. So short answer, I have no idea. Kevin, okay. just um, the other challenge I think with just leaving the collars, it's Nicole, Stefan, 
is there's a lot of stuff that we do to their necks, especially in the obstetric trauma patient in the first six weeks. So you know, traching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is a lot more complicated with a collar than without. So I think the ability to eliminate a source of ill, if you will, is important. All right, great. Thanks. Let's go to our callers. Our next question is from Dr. Deb Stein. And just a reminder to the uh, debate team, um, just so we can get more audience questions and if you can keep your comments fairly short um, so we can get to all their questions. All right, so uh, Dr. Stein. Hi, everyone. Hi, Deb Stein. Hi. Um, I have a question from for Drs. Patel and Skinner, and then based on your answers, I have a quick follow-up question. So I'll give you a clinical scenario. Patient comes in, awake and alert, not intoxicated. Uh, CT scan of his cervical spine is completely normal, normal by everybody's agreement it's normal, but he complains of neck pain and he has four out of five motor strength in his bilateral lower extremities. You get an MRI, you take the collar off, send him home, what do you do? Uh, this is Ruby. Um, uh, if he, if his motor exam, if his neurologic exam is not normal, um, then he needs another study. Uh, and I, I think I would be worried about uh, uh, maybe a ligamentous injury, I would get an MRI. Um, in, a, in a neurologic exam that is not normal, um, then I think the, the best follow-up study uh, to a negative CT would be an MRI. Um, if he has neck pain, ongoing neck pain, and the CT is negative, then I would take the collar off. But the, his neurologic exam has to be negative, has to be normal. Yeah, I'm not sure My how the nerve roots of the uh, cervical spine relate to your legs. Um, anyone can answer that. I'd, I'd be fascinated to understand that. Um, how, without having upper extremity pathology is what you're saying by not including that information. Um, but my right, let me, I, I'm sorry, my, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be vague. I, I, so four out of five in all fours. I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to be vague by that. Yeah, yeah, four out of five <clears> in all fours, hands down, um, requires further investigation. You can't be just ripping off the collar. Then how can you, in a patient who is in a coma, who is obtunded, how can you take his collar off without getting an MRI when you cannot evaluate whether or not he has motor deficit? Right, and that lines up with my first answer, um, which is you have to have upper extremity strength, at least in my world. You have to have symmetric strength. You might not be able to say, I'm, I'm going to do the finances for the hospital and, and answer a lot of complex questions or even um, not be delirious, but you have to manifest equal and symmetric strength in the uppers. Um, and that is my bare minimal. But, you know, uh, on the contrary, I think the question is, what does the cervical collar do? And, you know, if you have a negative CT, um, you know, the MRI, you know, will probably give you some information about the spinal cord potentially or uh, potentially some type of stable ligamentous injury. But the cervical collar, is it really immobilizing the spine and what's its purpose? And I think that that's really the, the question um, for the obtunded patient because we're not talking about, we're, t we're talking about pressure ulcers, we're talking about MRIs and patients who are unstable and things like that. So I, I, that's my way of looking at it. All right. Um, so let's, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Stein. Let's move on to our next caller question, please. Um, and this is a question from, uh, I, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, Bayrad Ziapur. Yes, it's me. I'm hearing you. Hello? We can hear you. Ask your question. Okay. Okay. 
thank you for uh, your uh, all our, uh, participants. Uh, it's very good uh, discussion. The question is that uh, when talking about the high quality city, uh, is it a 3D reconstructed or not? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah. uh, the, the, the answer is yes, 3D reconstructed. And the other question is. Um, I don't know if this discussion has regarded cost-effectiveness or not. It is just a diagnostic accurate test we are talking about. I'm sorry, caller. Can you can you repeat that question? Yeah, sure. Uh, is it just a discussion about the diagnostic accuracy test? Uh, because we are comparing city with a gold standard. Perhaps uh, we're talking about MRI. Or on the other side, we are comparing it to the traditional X-ray. You know, is it a diagnostic accuracy test, a fake study, or we are comparing it in cost, effective, cost effectiveness as well? Um, Dr. Sasa, maybe you want to answer that question? I couldn't actually hear the question. Oh, I think Bayrat's question is, is this discussion about the accuracy uh, multi-detector computer, computer tomography versus MRI versus x-rays? Um. I don't think so at its heart. I think that we don't have a perfect gold standard for imaging of the cervical spine, and that's where this, what this whole debate kind of centers around. I think that each have their strengths in different ways. I think static cervical spine films have certainly been eliminated a long time ago as anything particularly useful for the spine. ATLS doesn't even teach the lateral view for all that we were all crucified for not getting, you know, C seven T one for when we were training. Um I think that the focus more is are you gaining additional data with different studies, not necessarily are they um which one is the most well, I guess, in a way, which one is the most thorough is a question that's embedded within that. But, you know, what answer is good enough is more the question than which modality gets you there. All right, great. Thank, thank you, Dr. Sassen and, and uh, Bayrad. Um, we have another question um, from Sasha Adams. Sasha, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Uh, great. So thank you very much. This is a great discussion. Um I, I have an interest in geriatric trauma, and much of the comments earlier on, on degenerative um, disc disease and such are what we struggle with of whether or not to remove the collars. But what, um, Dr. Patel and Dr. Skinner, you were both mentioning how important the institutional resources are. You have to be appropriate resources with trauma surgeons and potentially even trauma specialist radiologists, people that are understanding what they're looking at to make that final call. How do you think that something like these guidelines should be handled at perhaps a level three or two center that doesn't necessarily have trauma specialists there, um, are they really going to be comfortable or are they uh, set up appropriately to be able to take off those collars if those conditions were met? Dr. Patel, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, it, it's all dependent on what you guys consider good practice, good standard of care um, with the resources that you have and your relationship with your higher level trauma center um, for circumstances that you, you feel overwhelmed, um, you feel like you need additional insight, additional resource, additional consultants to bear. 
Um, and, and that's pretty much most of trauma triage management. Now, I guess on the flip side, you've got uh, a person who's got very good goals of care in the elderly range, and, you know, they don't want an operation, even if they manifest new neurologic change or paresthesias after their collar comes off, and or their family is aware of that risk and they want to take a helicopter ride, great. Um, so, I mean, I think it involves uh, a conversation with your community, but also contextualized to your patient and what their goals are. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Patel. I think it's really having institutional standards and guidelines and really seeking, um, you know, a, a different level or a higher level of care, if you will, for uh, situations where, you know, um, uh, you're not able to um, manage uh, or address or diagnose a, a problem with in, in the context of your institutional guidelines. All right, great. Thank you so much, uh, um, Sasha. So uh, Matt Martin has a question, right, Matt? All right, yeah, and and, and thanks, guys. Great discussion, great debate. Uh, so we'll pull out a, li a little statistics uh, from Aaron Ruby. So and 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 I'll start off by saying I I actually like the clearing based on CT. But but if we talk about a rare injury, you know, we talk about a lot negative predictive value. Negative predictive value is ninety nine percent. But if we talk about a rare injury, like an unstable C-spine injury, uh, you know, this 1% or less, I, I could have a policy of clearing everybody without any imaging, and my negative predictive value is 99%. So, so do we have enough data for such a rare injury to actually say that we can safely do this, knowing, you know, that your, your negative predictive value is going to be great? If you, just because you have a rare injury? Well, you know, I think the data supports that, but I don't think the community supports it, and we aren't there yet. Um, you know, again, there are, there are a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of uh, the, the, the studies, the approach is not standardized between institutions. Um, I really go back, again, to the purpose of the collar. What does the what is the collar really doing for us? Um, the collar does not restrict motion um, significantly. Um, it's not preventing paralysis. Um, if you have a study that is negative, um, even if there is a central cord, for example, and you can't examine a patient, there's a central cord, but there's no other findings, and you're not going to see that on CT. What is the cervical collar going to do for you? Um, and I, I don't think that we have any evidence that the cervical collar provides protection. It just reminds us that there's a potential for a spine injury, and that's really what it does. And so I think that you can remove collars um, in, you know, in, in most patients, and I agree with that, but we're not there yet. Can I, I'm going to, this is Kevin Schuster, I'm going to make a little follow-up, and I think that's exactly right. I think the cervical collar reminds you that there could be a spine injury. And as part of my argument, I said that we're not really sure what the collar does, and I totally agree with uh, Dr. Skinner in that respect. But the fact that the collar is there reminds the physicians that this is not something that we can be uh, flippant about, and we need to actually think hard about how we're going to uh, clear the cervical collar, whether we come up with some 
vague protocol that talks about osteophytes and, and degenerative disease, which I think is really hard. So I've, it's interesting. I'd love to see anybody that can actually put a protocol like that together because uh, the subjectivity there is significant. Um, but then, it, like I said, it makes you think, and I don't think, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that for sure, but I think I know I've seen at least two people not um, because their collar was cleared, but definitely had did, came to the hospital without a neurologic deficit mm-hmm. and developed one in the hospital. Now, it's unclear whether that was related to a, de- a worsening um, hematoma that we just hadn't imaged yet um, or some other injury that just, uh, you know, progression of the spine injury. But we, I, we've, I think probably most of us have probably definitely seen that. So it, it just makes you think. I mean, I don't disagree with the math, Matt, if, um, just to finish the answer to your question. Um, you're right. The rare disease, the numbers are with us, um, but I still think we have to proceed with care, as Kevin pointed out, and be thoughtful about how we go about doing this. And even if you do change your protocol um, for all the places that have committed to doing so, um, totally reasonable, but hopefully you all are collecting data in a systematic fashion so that when this happens, when and if it happens, um, and it's going to, as you start doing this on thousands and thousands of patients, that you're able to determine why did that happen, what were the, what was the setup for that, but we still don't know what that is. So, uh, Experts, I uh, we're, we're run out of time, and I, I know there are probably still tons of unanswered questions out there. I wanted to thank all of our experts for their for defending their positions um, with such good evidence, and um, but we wanted to give everybody an opportunity, uh, all the debate team members, um, uh, to make a closing remark. Um, what's the take-home message? What, what does the practicing trauma surgeon? What should we do, um, given that there's so many unanswered questions? Let's start with uh, Dr. Patel. You got to get together with your local experts um, and make sure that you understand what you're going to do when you encounter a cervical um, collar, Um, what you're going to do with the data, what you're going to do with the exam piece, what you're going to do with the radiology piece, and have an increasingly systematic way of going about your decision-making. Try to eliminate the haphazard um, world that we live in. Dr. Stockton? I think one of the things that Mayor just hit up hit upon well, um, sort of in, for, in summary for me, is you need to have consistency with how you deal with patients in cervical collars. I think that although cervical collars are not perfect, they don't perfectly immobilize, et cetera, as Kevin echoed before, they do provide a modicum of, hey, this neck may have issues. Please don't just torque it at will. My take-home point for the audience would be it matters the age range. It matters what the neurologic deficits of your patients are and take all of that into account when you interpret the data that's out there and you devise your protocols of what you do with cervical spine evaluation in the obtunded trauma patient. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Skinner, please. Um, You know, I agree with um, uh, everyone's uh, take-home points. I think they're all uh, really globally covers what we've been discussing here. I think what I would add is that you know, really the focus to me is the the normal CT that's high quality based on one's institutional standards. This is not a CT with degenerative changes, but a completely normal CT. I think that that's really the the patient where the focus is. And I think if you have that, 
Um, I think that you can be safe with removing collars in most situations, even in the abundant patient where you haven't really observed, you know, um, significant movement. Um, and so I think that that's where, you know, we need to go is the normal CT and what does normal mean. Um, and also the issue of the collar itself. What is the collar doing for us? Can we do something else to potentially prevent progression or of a neurologic uh, deficit? Because I don't think the collar does that. And Dr. Schuster, please close this out. Uh, so all incredibly great points from everybody. I think uh, uh, it was a great discussion, and I agree with all of the uh, final points that everybody made. I think you need to come up with a protocol that you do at your institution and do it uh, the same every way. I'm a huge proponent of standardizing care, at least within the, at the institutional level, um, so that everybody does it the same way and the spine surgeon doesn't do it one way and the trauma surgeon does it a different way, uh, creates confusion. And that's where people get um, can make mistakes, uh, especially health staff and uh, other individuals that don't typically deal with uh, C-spine injuries. Uh, so, again, it was a great discussion, and I agree with all those final points. Uh, basically, a protocol is uh, key. Great. Thank you, Kevin. So, um, again, I want to thank Dr. Schuster, Stassen, Patel, and Skinner. You know, despite the fact that there are clearly some differences in terms of um, clearing the C-spine uh, without an MRI or with an MRI, um, it's clear that our experts all have one thing in common, that, that it's that they're trying to ensure the best outcome for their patients. Um, I want to particularly thank um, Dr. Stockton for joining us, and um, we really appreciate all the audience participation. Please stay tuned for our next trauma cast. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thanks, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember... That all you need to do is look to the east.